Many of you are aware that I have been in the startup world for a couple of years, talking mm. with fellow co-founders. So we always meet and nag about two things when you are a co-founder. So it's about mental health and people. <laughs> we become kind of nostalgic of the times where we had this atmosphere where the, it was almost like a family, like two or three people. And then the, you become 10. And after 10, it's almost like there is like a, a big problem that we have in into holding it together and keep like the same rituals that we used to have, the same laughs that we that that we used to have. So that's one of the key topics that, in fact, we spend quite a lot of time. And even myself, I become quite nostalgic of that those times. I wanted to invite Media Maymay for to the Growth Hacking Culture podcast and discuss about what can we learn when we are scaling up culture from the CEOs, from the startups, and what can we share so that we, we have the growth of culture and this humanity, this sense of family in the correct way. So before that, I wanted to introduce Miriam. She is a well-known uh, person for her cultural change and, and speaking events on the, on the topic of how to preserve your culture while you scale. She's kind of the mega coach because on top, on top, I have to add that she's a fellow of the Harvard Institute of Coaching. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Miriam has been coaching founders and executives and supported leadership development uh, strategies with well-known startups such as Slack, Twitter, LinkedIn, Glassdoor, and you name it. Like, there is more than 100 startups in her in her list. Um <laughs> She is also the co-founder of a quite nice project called the Two Million Leaders Project. And she will tell us a little bit more about it because I'm quite interested uh, on the topic. Yeah. Now, Miriam, welcome. And one first thing to start. I wanted to understand if the experience on, on the area of coaching with CEOs of startup, was it in just by design or just it happened just by luck? Oh, great question. Oh, I, 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 I would want to say more by luck, but if I look back, I've always been so fascinated by humans and work. And so I've always wanted to work with humans in the context of work. And I happen to be really well suited to work with senior leaders. It's just, I'm wired to be someone who I just speak, I kind of level with people regardless of how special other people might consider them or what, how big of a pedestal others might put them on. I just see people as people. And I think CEOs really crave really honest, direct feedback and it's hard to get that. So I found myself attractive. I kind of, it was probably mutual. I was drawn to work with the, those who had the most influence and they were drawn to work with me because I don't care who you are, where you came from. Let's talk about how you can be exceptional. <laughs> Miriam, on your experience. So what I mentioned before, this is a story that Founders that become a little bit nostalgic, thinking about the past and the key problems being mental health, and the other one is about dealing with people. Yeah, yeah. is that true, or is it just me and my pals? <laughs> I think it's true. I love to think that 
We want to show up, do great work and go home and have a great life. Now, if I'm a co-founder, there's less of a distinction between what's happening at work and what's happening in my life. There's a sense of ownership and responsibility that tends to eclipse our sense of identity. And it stays with us in our mind, whether we like it or not, it's in the background 24 seven. So I I think for, for co-founders dealing with people, is really hard. I like to think, why is it, why does it not happen that way? We all want to show up, do great work, go home, have a great life. Why does it get so hard? And it's interpersonal challenges, communication, cascading. It's, it's, but sometimes it's real strategy questions that people have to wrestle with. But I think for moving from startup to ABC, if, if they're venture backed companies, more, more often than not, it's figuring out how do I let go of doing the work but trust that it's going to be done right in the right timing, in the right way, in the way that I need it done. And that, that creates a lot of internal turmoil. So it goes back to your sense of needing to manage myself. So that maps to what you call mental health and then managing others, which is dealing with people. Indeed. Yeah. Um, now that companies are growing even faster than 10 years ago. Oh my God. Um, and because of your experience, uh, you have dealt with quite well-known tech companies. Can you describe the type of atmosphere, the, the type of culture that these companies uh, are having when, when they go for, for, uh, from this little group of co-founders into series A, B, C? Is there, what are the key changes that are, that are happening? Yeah. So one of the key changes is all of a sudden there's a real company. Co-founders will say, oh my gosh, it's as though we have a real company. And for employees who are coming on, they don't want to hear it's some, uh, their, their leaders say, oh my gosh, I'm so surprised we have a real company that because they, <laughs> they've joined to help build something, but they believe that there's already a lot of positive momentum. So that's, I think one of the, the first shifts is feeling like it goes from, I loved what you said earlier around this group of people and there's in strong relationships and we understand each other and we, we might not always get along, but we can roll up our sleeves and we can do the work together. And then all of a sudden you're transitioning to more and more people and you start to not know everybody's name. More people are onboarding in a week or a month than you used to have on your own team for an entire year. And so there's this sense of acceleration and depending on our relationship to that, there's leaders who enjoy it and it's the highest high and the best ride of their life. And there's other leaders who feel like they're, to use a skiing reference, like they're out over their skis, like any moment now I'm going to tumble and that can ignite a bit of imposter syndrome. So I work with a lot of leaders and helping them feel really centered, really grounded, really confident in their ability to lead partly because they are informed about what their people need from them in this next phase, because it does shift slightly as, as you grow. But it, what is consistent is they need to know what's the vision, what's my role in the vision, what's our strategy, uh, what, how, do I, how do I work here, how do we do things around here, and so we'll get more into culture, I believe, as the conversation goes, but yeah. I, I like what you say, uh, you mentioned the fact that, yeah, we founded the company. The next step is, yeah, we got our first sales. Then, yes, yeah. our first investor put money, even though it was 10K. Um, so yeah. I have the impression, Miriam, 
that this sense of vulnerability that we have at the start as a CEO is lost with the, with the years. We become a little bit more mm -hmm. cautious, we share less, and then comes the question, so is it because there is people coming that we, uh, we have the sense that the sense of family is lost, or is it because the co-founders are changing and that influences, in fact, the culture? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I, I know some CEOs who are very effective at scaling their culture in particular, who are really transparent and they find the venues in which they can be honest. And some people close to them would, would say, I wish they wouldn't say exactly what they're thinking all the time because it can create confusion <laughs> and all that. So I will maybe add an asterisk to it, but I do think it's healthy and necessary for CEOs and, and senior leaders to remember that what's in their mind is gold and people need to understand what's in your mind. Even when you're frustrated, even when you're feeling maybe stressed about the, uh, maybe the pace of the company or the quality, those, those moments of really kind of calls to action for the people in your organization are really helpful. As long as you're then also sharing the highs and when you're really proud and when you had a great meeting with someone. So is the more transparent we can be the better most CEOs think that that's not what you're quote unquote supposed to do. And so they're being coming increasingly performative and less authentic and trying to fit the molds of what they saw in their early careers, the CEOs to look like. Uh, it seems to me like this transparency thing is something that is one of the hardest hurdles that, that we have to overcome either as a co-founder of a startup or even if you are a somebody a leader in a in a big corporation we feel like uh people are going to take advantage uh that is something that we we are going to scare people but mm -hmm. not right the sense of transparency is something that we make us closer so when we are in discussing with a family we can discuss about everything so we have our moms telling us uh, like we were talking about my mom just before yeah. uh, telling yeah. us what what they're going through complaining and all, all, all the stuff, but it's, we feel protected because there is an exchange that is with the heart. And that's what makes people that even in the hard times, we can fight together towards a common goal mm -hmm. and we can overcome the challenges to, uh, together. I, you made me think also about a book that I, I, I read like maybe four or five years ago when I was living, in fact, my corporate life, um, it was made, written by Rand Fiskin, uh, the founder of Moz. This mm -hmm. is your super app. Uh, um, and he was mentioning very often because he got a burnout as, as a founder. And he was blaming, in fact, the fact that he changed. <laughs> in fact, his interaction with the team changed that as a reason uh, for feeling, creating a distance, not, not only for the people, but also in, in himself, because there was yeah. no one to share what he was going through. Exactly right. Yeah. And to a certain degree, that's true. There's, you are now in a, basically it's a power dynamic. And so whether you realize it or not, people are going to weight your words in ways that are unhelpful. And so while I'm a proponent and I think it's essential for leaders to be transparent, it doesn't mean that you also aren't looking for a safe 
place where you can be completely honest, which is usually where I come in because people, whether it's your spouse or your family or your team, there's no one who's really unbiased and just there to kind of talk to you and be your thought partner the way that a coach can. But yeah, I think that distance, it can be really isolating. It helps makes leaders feel increasingly lonely, which actually detracts from their ability to think creatively and think outside the box. So innovation starts to feel stifled unless that leader can go externally and find peers that stimulate them or, or that they can engage with in a, in a meaningful way. Hmm. Miriam, so yeah. I, with all of the chats that you have got with these CEOs, what are the major things that CEOs of startups forget or simply do not know about work culture when they are scaling up? Yeah. I would say the first and most important is that culture is linked with bottom line success and bottom line performance. So sometimes we have a, a way of thinking that culture is soft or it's a nice to have, but there is a lot of research that ties culture with bottom line results. And early in my career, I worked with professors out of the University of Michigan Business School that had researched for about 25 years, specifically linking behaviors to bottom line results. So because of the time that I worked with them in consulting with Clorox, Nintendo, JetBlue, to name a few, I was able to really get an understanding of what are the levers if you want to grow if you want to see revenue growth, what are the cultural levers you need to press? If you want to see customer satisfaction, what are the cultural levers that you need to push? And so on. And so depending on what we're aiming for, there's always a tie back to humans and how they're thinking and how they're operating and how we work. That's what we call culture. And so there's ways to operationalize whatever it is that we're wanting to drive. So number one, culture is linked with bottom line success. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess number two is that culture can be articulated and operationalized. So that's the other thing is people feel like it's either on their shoulders or again, it's a bit soft, but it's it, it's only soft if we haven't taken the time to do what we call culture work, which is really basically being an anthropologist of my own company and figuring out what is it that makes us unique. There's something special from the infancy of any company. And the question is, what was that? What was the, the, the way of orienting towards this idea, this concept that got us going? And how do we, how do we capture that? How do we bottle it essentially, but through our systems, our processes, our performance management systems and so on. I, I, I love the, the two points that you have highlighted. One, this correlation between culture and bottom line, which made me think about another book, I read a lot, Miriam. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the, um, the book that was um, was written by the founder of, of, of Zappos, Delivering Happiness. So yeah. clearly that it is because of the shift of culture that he decided to put in place that the results came so that they were not having all these problems with bottom line, just doing fast delivery transactional uh, relationships with, with customers to create yeah. this sense of belonging. And I, I really love the structure that he put in, uh, in, in place. And, and then you allow me also to, to, to bitch about a little bit about the HR consulting firms who are, when we, they go and do an intervention about, um, about culture, 
They are focusing only on culture without linking it to the bottom line, which makes that the actions that they do are not representative to, in order to make progress in a, in a company. And, yeah. and this, is a, this is a lack. For, for me, it's like you, if you have a company that is basically offering services for human resources uh, and you are delivering on, on, on reworking culture, it need, there needs to be a, a correlation. And it is possible today to, with the studies and you, you, that, you, that you have mentioned, to, to forecast what is going to be the impact of, of, of the actions that the, of the risk redesign of the culture of a company. The second mm -hmm. point is it, it, that you mentioned is about the articulation of, uh, of, of culture. Um, and I'm thinking now about my previous company. You know what? The values that my previous company had, I wasn't able to understand. So yeah. not only they chose to have very fancy names for, instead of simple simple words, I, I, I didn't feel that they... Um, I didn't understand it enough in, in order to explain it correctly, because if values are not reflected with behaviors and behaviors, we have to like kind of imagine, visualize it in, in our head, because the behaviors of collaboration, for instance, for a person who is working, in, I don't know, in accounting will be different versus the marketeer. And we we need to, to have this expression like into actions. And if you stand by, only by values that are published in your website, one, nobody reads it. Second, yeah. it's not reinforced. And third, you right. can imagine how to, how to be even more collaborative. It looks simple, the word collaboration. But in, in action, it is not that simple. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, so there's so many companies who they've done, they've, done their values and they feel good. They check the box. They feel proud. They feel good. I've done, I've done my culture work. You yeah. have not. No, you haven't. There's so much more to it than that. I mean, that's maybe one piece and it's not going to get you what you want. And so you, your experience there is so, so, so common. There are hundreds of millions of people feeling that way right now. And so that means such a lost opportunity for most organizations to be able to employ, going back to what you were saying about how families interact with their hearts. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially for knowledge workers, or we think about employing people because of either their experience or their ability to process information or deliver results in an office setting, but we're not taking into account how much they have access to if they're actually emotionally engaged in their work as well, mm. how much more effort they'll put in, how much more, more broadly they'll think. And so they'll be able to accomplish so much more in the same amount of time. It'll actually feel better for them. They'll be more fulfilled and the organization stands to benefit as well. So it's win, 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 win. If we can actually engage people in a meaningful way. Hmm. I'm loving this conversation. You, you know what? Because it has happened, of course, that I, I speak with coaches, but when there is no dimension of psych human psychology, the conversation mm. goes into the meaningless, fluffy area. And here mm. I feel that what you're saying is directly correlated to how the brain processes information. So as you mentioned, intrinsic motivation is something that for knowledge workers it is important so it's not because you are going to give them like bonuses money throw money that these guys are going to perform better 
if there is no purpose, sense of belonging, and you name a couple of things that are, belong to this human cultural world, these guys are going to be just delivering tasks. So the same value as a blue yeah. collar. So, and this is not what corporations uh, want. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They want to wave a magic wand and make it better, which is possible. It just, they have to put some attention to where it's most deserved. Indeed. Um, yeah. Now, let's get back to the real world. The real world is where most companies are not startups. They are established companies, either a small SME that has been lasting for the last uh, 10 years or 20 years. They have an organic growth that is not the, the growth of startups where you are expecting like a minimum of 5x every year, you name it. <laughs> uh, some are traditional, but aim to learn from these fancy tech startups. What are the things that corporations, so the established corporations can reuse from startups in terms of culture or the way they process, they, they, they have processes that are a little bit more agile when they want to transform? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Just thinking about it. So I agree. Most companies are not startups. They're not trying to scale rapidly. And I, I think that's good. I think that there's a certain pressure that's put on scaling organizations, venture-backed companies. And so the fact that the majority of the companies aren't that, great. So let's talk to, uh, talk about all of those organizations and what culture looks like in those settings. So I, I would say some of the, the fun maybe sexy things they can pull from startup world are things like recognition programs. There's a, there's a lot of fun that happens in startups. Mm -hmm. That's the idea is that people join because they want to build something together. They, and they're there and they're in it. And so that that's, again, that sense of purpose and that sense of ownership. And most companies aren't really thinking about that, but it is possible and accessible for everyone, regardless of what stage their company is or how static their growth might be. So how do you help people feel a sense of ownership over what they're doing? And there's a lot of ways to accomplish that, but that's one thing that you can even just ask your people is what would it take for you to feel a higher degree of ownership? Mm. So, and sometimes it is profit sharing, even if it's 1%, or sometimes it's being involved with strategic planning, or sometimes, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to create it, but a sense of ownership. Uh, Simple things like recognition programs, and this does not need to be something that's financially based, but thinking about the kinds of behaviors that you want to shine a light on, the kinds of things that you want to amplify in your organization, how are you calling people out? It can be informal where you as the leader, you're sending a message or an email, or you're mentioning someone's name in a meeting, or it can be more formal, especially if you have a larger company of a hundred to several thousand people, you can, there are many different options for making sure that people are recognizing one another for either the values, if they're understood, uh, but the behaviors that we really want to amplify. So finding ways for everybody to, that's again, that, that reinforces a sense of ownership because I can recognize others. So finding ways that people feel empowered to do just that. I think it's really helpful to do engagement surveys and every startup does engagement surveys. For some reason, not other every other company thinks about doing such things, but it's just really valuable. Even if it's once a year, ask your people, how are you doing? What would make your job easier? Are you feeling clear about where we're going? 
Do you feel like we are efficient? Do you feel like you understand your role? There's just some very specific, easy questions and you can get quantitative and qualitative data. It just, then you digest it and you act on it. And it's amazing how all of a sudden now people feel like their voice matters. And so they start to engage a bit more. So it's a virtuous cycle. So those, I'll stop there. I could probably go on and on. We could spend the whole podcast on all the things that other companies could borrow. (laughs) So surveys are a good tool, but as you say, nothing replaces the the one-to-one conversations uh, in order to get the temperature because Let's be realistic. When you're a startup, you're broke. <laughs> you don't have even the money to, to go and pay someone to do the survey. Right. Mm? Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't have to cost. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing is that you were talking about this pressure that that, that startups have for delivering growth uh, quite uh, in a quite big pace. Um mm-hmm. Funny enough, I, I was talking with certain friends that I have in, in uh, back in Europe. Uh, here in the Middle East is still not yet there, but there is kind of a movement about saying, what if we have a growth that, little bit, that is a little bit more human so that you don't mm-hmm. have to deal with the mental health pressure of raising money, having the investors slapping you around uh, for months, uh, not being able to sleep and all the stuff. So, and, and I, I have been discussing with certain friends in, in uh, and they were mentioning, so I don't want to raise for my next venture. I'm, I don't want to raise money anymore. So I grow at my pace, but I have peace. I can be working from somewhere else. I will, now that I, you, the first time you do all the mistakes possible, at, at least you know how to kind of growth hack your growth without all this investment and all this pressure. So the human scaling, I think it is something that is going to be the thing in the startups in the uh, in the coming years. Yeah, I, I believe that not all money is created equal. And when people have the opportunity to take on investment, whether it's from friends and family or whether they're putting in their own money or if they're taking on money from investors to really think what. Uh, what's coming with this money? What are the expectations? What are the expectations I have myself, my friends and family have of me, that my investors have of me? And be really honest, is that something that you want to sign up for? And most people don't think about it. They're so focused on the dollars in the bank and the sense of either security or mobility that that generates for growing the business. And I, I do see more and more investors trending towards profitability, which is a slower growth path, more organic than the hyper growth. And I, I like that because I think that hyper growth is about market conditions. It's it's much less about how we're running an organization. And so it's not something we have full control over when, when there is an opportunity to go hyper growth, it's great to have that infusion of cash to go to, for that kind of moonshot, but most organizations shouldn't try to replicate that because it creates unnecessary stress. Miriam, it just came to my mind. I, I was I was just wondering with with this experience that you have into coaching leaders for startups, and some of them are not startups. Um, do you see any trends uh, in terms of what worries the most CEOs uh, because of the changes that happened during COVID times? This 
maybe this need to have more human organizations? Is it reflected in some coaching conversation or is it just my imagination and hope? <laughs> oh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your, your question is, do what, what, a, is there a trend? Are they worried about creating more human centric organizations? I'm pausing. I, I want to say yes, but I want to be really honest. So I'm just doing a, an inventory and a scan. I think partly I've always worked with those people. And so I'm trying to see, notice kind of more broadly, if I widen my aperture, is that a trend? I don't know that I can say yes yet. Uh -huh. I think we, I, I want to be able to say yes. Uh, and so I guess trend, yes, but it's not growing fast enough. I think it, there's still a, an, an illusion that there's a disconnect between humans and business success. And if we can't wake up to the fact that humans are, are the way in which we're going to be successful, then we're really, we're, we're cutting ourselves off at the knees. So you just ruined my my evening. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we gotta we, we gotta go. But anyone listening to this podcast, thank you, thank you for being someone who cares. <laughs> you are still part of the minority, but we well, together we can take on the world. Absolutely, there is still hope, and I I do believe that things will change. It is it is a little bit as you say that it doesn't go as fast as we people who wants to take care of people or we want to have an impact on people it doesn't grow as fast as we, we we want yeah which comes to my point so do you have do you have uh, your own definition of what is culture my favorite definition words. yes yeah my favorite definition of culture is the aggregate personality of a business mm -hmm. So if I think about the, if everybody all together, how would I describe this, the personality of this organization? Uh, is it aggressive? Is it calm? Is it kind? Is it uh, fast paced? Is it patient? Is it considerate? Those kinds of things. Another way to think about it is how we work. And we think about anyone onboarding, they want to know how do we, how do we do this here? How do we work? And that essentially is culture, is the how. It's not the what, it's not the who, but it's the how. Indeed. And it's funny that our brain has a tendency to, when we think about culture and we associate it with a, with a company, uh, maybe it's the, the fact that we take like kind of shortcuts in certain areas of our brain that is not the cognitive one. It's not, an, it's not analytics that we need in order to define the culture of an organization, but it's a gut feeling that comes from certain part of our brain and it's easier to um to make it similar as it was a person you you're totally right and that's why we describe these guys are idiots these guys are super uh, kind and, but in fact is we are talking about a multitude of people behind right <laughs> exactly. It could be 60,000 people, but what is the aggregate personality for we to personify this organization? How would we describe it? And it's usually pretty easy to do. You can, especially if it's a well-known company, you can ask a few people, how would you describe this company? And there's consistency and you ask employees and there's usually a pretty close parallel. I think I... I read something that you wrote because you have you are writing in blogs, magazines uh, uh, quite often. Something 
where you describe that one of the major elements that you recommend to have awesome work culture is to have a superhero level of self-awareness. Hmm. What does it mean and how do you develop it at scale? We are talking about hmm. many people. This self-awareness is like the big challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So a super superhero level of self-awareness. It's like a tongue twister. <laughs> I think to be great leaders, we have to become students of ourselves. I think we need to understand what makes us tick, what allows us to be at our best, what happens when we are not at our best, what's the impact that has on others. And we need to become increasingly proactive to show up as our best self more and more often. Most people don't think about that, but I much rather a leader take a pause, drink some water, get a snack, come two minutes late to a meeting then show up hungry or thirsty and then be maybe irritable or frustrated, or maybe they're carrying their last conversation from a meeting into the next. And so there's this ripple effect essentially of when we're, especially for leaders, the ripple effect we have in an organization cannot be understated. And so to really be able to model, embody and amplify the behavior we want to see in others, we need to first understand ourselves. So that can, there's pretty simple ways to scale it. There's, mm. it, I think there is a skill element to it. You need to teach people what the heck it even means to be self-aware or to have inquiry into how I'm doing. And so a very simple way to do it in the beginning of a meeting, I ask people, are you feeling red, yellow, or green? Red is distracted and kind of disengaged. Yellow is like, I'm here, but you know, something's pulling my attention and green is I'm, I'm all in. And if you could actually get people to just pause and ask themselves, how am I doing? And then start to make a link between the thoughts and the way that they're showing up in the meeting is more linked to how they were before. Then yeah. the more awareness they'll have to take responsibility to shift more and more and more towards what we would call green or just present and engaged. So if we can take responsibility to be present and engaged then we'll have much higher ROI of any interactions we have with one another. So to, um, simple things like a check-in, we can scale it also by operationalizing it. So putting it in our performance review process and just saying things like, how present does this person seem day to day? Do you feel like most of your interactions with this person leave you feeling positive to neutral? Uh, or neutral to negative. I mean, there's different ways of doing it. So I'm just saying this a bit off the cuff. I'm a big fan of customizing everything and making sure that it really reflects the culture an organization wants to have. But yeah, essentially it's just then shining a light on people who are doing it and making sure that you're promoting and that you're hiring people who want to kind of embody this sense of self-awareness because who we hire, who we fire and who we promote really sends loud messages to the organization, what it is that we value. So <clears throat> this principle of, of, of self-awareness, uh, and just to contextualize for uh, our audience, is that if you don't develop the ritual, because you cannot do it just when you think about it. So right. it is all about creating this mental process so that you do it continuously every single day, even when you are at home, because it can help you also at, at home. Um, until it becomes a reflex. So you know that your mind, without thinking, you enter into the new meeting, you take just a 
couple of seconds to do the, yes. check, uh, the check-in. That is super important. Tell me one thing. So in the USA, yeah. is the, the use of mindfulness becoming a little bit more uh, popular? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's becoming more accepted, more popular, more and more integrated into school systems, into organizational systems. And it's it's still slow, but there's a lot of research that just shows we're happier, better, more, more effective, and yeah. just across the board, it's helpful to, so mindfulness can be everything from being able to take a deep breath, from mm-hmm. understanding our stress stimulus and our stress response and how to better interact with that. And so, yes, I would say that there's a, a greater level of understanding and it's more commonly discussed than it was five years ago, for sure, 10 years ago. Uh, that is also true uh, in this part of the world. So it, it is growing. I wish it was a little bit more because the development of self-awareness, I, I think that this reg- regular check-ins, being able to control a little bit your distractions, your getting back your focus is so important in today's CEOs, employees, in order to uh, to have a greater and healthier uh, culture in, uh, in organizations. We are almost ending, Miriam, but I wanted to end in a, in a positive note because it, it's all about growth hacking culture. I wanted to, I wanted you to give me what are your top three tips for CEOs to scale a new and healthier culture. Top, yeah. top three: smile. Number one, smile. Mm-hmm. The I'll explain it just in a sentence or two. The the leaders, the most seasoned leaders, can smile through even the roughest times. It's because they have a they're able to take things and keep them in perspective. And there's also a lot of hormones that are released when we smile. There's a lot of benefits to smiling. It sends, it helps wire our brain towards optimism and solutions. So Mm -hmm. smile, just just smile every once in a while. Maybe smile now as you're listening. Number one, smile. Two, really become a student of yourself, like we were saying. So model the behavior you're wanting to see in others. Mm. And then, oh, can I have four? Yes, yes, go ahead. Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, <laughs> three is articulate what you want. So do the t- take the time to articulate the culture that you want. Hmm. And number four is to shine a light on people doing it the way that you want them to be doing it. Nice, nice. <clears throat> Which goes back to the point that you, you were saying before about the recognition. When you recognize someone, Go and mention in front of others what exactly he did. It's not the not mention just the outcome. He was the best seller uh, of last month. No, what did he do? If you want others to learn new beha- behaviors and mind these behaviors, go and describe the situation. How did he do it? So that we all learn the how. And that's that's how you become healthier, happier, and all the stuff. Exactly right. right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, Miriam, so how do, I'm pretty sure that there is going to be a lot of people who are going to be quite impressed by one, your experience, two, by the kind of awesome things that you that, that you have mentioned in this, this podcast. How do they find you? Where do, the, do they go to, to find you? Yeah, come to me on LinkedIn with questions. Miriam Mima, M-I-R-I-A-M-M-E-I-M-A kind of a mouthful so leaders who smile.com is easier to remember leaders who smile oh, 
that yep. comes. So it comes back to help. I am, I have a mission of creating at least 2 million leaders in the world who smile, who are the kinds of people who are able to move through decisions with consciousness, which usually requires a bit of perspective. And that usually comes from this, something as simple as a smile. Thank you very much, Miriam, for your time. It was really lovely to speak to you. And I spoke to you in Spanish just before. So that was awesome because I have been speaking Spanish for maybe one month. So yeah. I forgot a little bit uh, of my practice. Thank you very much for being part of this awesome episode of Growth Hacking Culture. Have a nice day. Oh, thank you.